Well, good morning, church. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25. How many of you believe that God of the Bible created the heavens and the earth? I would assume for professing believers that we would acknowledge and believe that that is true. This is, of course, foundational to the Bible. You open up to Genesis 1, what what do you see? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How many of you believe that at one time, all of creation was perfect without sin, including initially even Adam and Eve? You believe that to be true? Absolutely. But things did not remain that way. Because unfortunately, we have chapter 3 of Genesis, where we see Adam and Eve sinning against God by eating the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And from that point, creation began to rapidly spin out of control to, to the point where everything now has been tainted. Even this past week, we had Hurricane Ian come and just demolish much of the southeastern part of Florida. Hurricanes are the result of sin. It's the result of a fallen humanity. It's, a fall, it's the result of a fallen world. That's why we have tornadoes, earthquakes. That's why we have cancer, sickness, heart attacks, stroke, death. All of these things came into our world because of sin. Broken relationships, fights, wars, political corruption, murder. For Christians, I think it's obvious to us, isn't it, that we live in a broken, fallen world. That is the reality of where we live. And and the truth is we're all affected by it. Uh, Because we have all been born sinners separated from God. And, And that is something that I don't want us to forget. Even creation is groaning. Let me read a few verses from Romans chapter 8. Verses 19 through 23, it says this, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You know, it is, an, is important for us to grasp the brokenness of the fallen world in order to become better gospel citizens. So let's jump in the text this morning. Here's what we're talking about if you want a title. We're going to talk about the realities of living in a fallen world. So follow with me. I'm going to read. It's a lot. It's a big section, but I do want to read this together. Let's read Acts 25. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. 
So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them no more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, who had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king of Bernice, arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunities to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay. But on the next day, took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate, indicate the charges against him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word this morning that you've given us. We thank you that you have not left us on our own. God, thank you for the reminder this morning that it's in Christ alone that we find our cornerstone, God, where 
the weak are remain, remain, like are made strong, Father. It's in our weakness that we boast because when we are weak, you are strong, God. You are deserving of all praise. Lord, this morning I pray as we look at the brokenness of fallen humanity, I pray that you would soften our hearts. I pray that you would humble us. God, that you would remind us that when we were born into this world, we were born separated from you because of our sin. And these characteristics that we see only by the grace of God, are they not part of our lives today? So Lord, would you give us a, a hunger and a thirst for righteousness? Would you give us a burden for the lost, Lord, that would lead us to pray all the more this morning? And so Lord, would you enlarge our hearts in you this morning? We need you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we've seen the last few weeks, Paul has been in custody and in and out of trials all throughout. And his saga continues here in chapter 25, but let's just catch ourselves up real quick to where we ended last week. The end of chapter 24, verse 27 says this, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So if you remember, Felix was not a good dude. He did not really care about the truth. He he basically um, had Drusilla, his wife, get divorced from her first husband so that he could marry her. He was also someone that loved to take bribes. In fact, he had often brought Paul before him to try to get Paul to bribe him in order to get some money so that he would release Paul. And ultimately, he was not a good man because he left an innocent man in prison. And and then so here what we have, he was in prison for two years before Festus takes over. Now, I'm not going to lie to you, like this morning, uh, I'm a little bit heavy with this message because there's just a lot of, there's a lot of dialogue that goes here. There's a lot, a lot of information here and and we just don't see a lot of Jesus and and it took a lot for me I had to plead with the Lord this morning God opened my heart and and so I believe he's given me a sobering word just to remind us of what sinful creation looks like what sinful humanity is and and the fact that we once were like this and my prayer for us is that we would be spurred on to, to pray all the more for our lost brothers and sisters and so Let's look at the realities of living in a fallen world. Here's the first point if you want to take notes this morning. The world is relentless against Christ and his followers. The world is relentless against Christ and his followers. So as I already mentioned, Festus has taken over. This is two years after Paul was initially put in prison. He was kept there in order to please the Jews. And so we see within three days of Festus arriving in his new job, he heads to Jerusalem. So at this time, of course, Jerusalem was under the rule of Rome, and so he was ruling from Caesarea. And it was important for him to go to Jerusalem because in order to have a, a, a successful ruling over the people, he needed to earn the favor of the Jews. That was an important thing. Otherwise, it would have just been constant fighting. And so he, he is trying to earn favor with the Jews. And as soon as he lands there, the Jews come. And, and 
are asking for Paul to be brought to Jerusalem so that he could be put on trial. Now remember, this isn't the first time that this was asked to happen. Uh, He was asked to come to Jerusalem before, and what was the reason? We see that in the scriptures here. The reason was is they wanted to ambush him and kill him. Second time that we have seen this. And of course, we don't know for sure if Festus was made aware of this. Like, it's not clear uh, if they told him, hey, we want to ambush him, or that's just a side effect, like they're playing goody two-shoe, which is kind of what I imagine. But we're not real sure. Like, did, he, did they just try to get him to bring him there, saying, hey, we want a trial? Or, or did he say, did he get him involved with the scheme of trying to attack Paul? We don't fully know here. Uh, but thankfully... Uh, Festus does the right thing and does not bring him to Jerusalem and yet sets a trial. But, but here's the thing that we see. Like, after two years, they have not forgotten about Paul. He's been harmless in prison. He hasn't stirred up anything, and yet they want him dead. The Jews were relentless against Paul. And, and that is the truth and the reality of the world against Christians today. Things have not changed. You know, sometimes we we have this idea that things are getting worse, and I I think to a certain degree that's true, but there's also a major reality that things have always been here. Persecution has always been a part of our world because of broken humanity. And this is a theme that we see all throughout Acts, and it is still here Today. In fact, if you were to follow the history of how the Bible got into the English language, you would find a bloody trail. There were many people who lost their lives because they were striving to get the Bible into the language of the common people. So that it wasn't just the priest and the, those who were high up who had the authority of God's word, but it, the God's word is for all people. And so think about that. The Bible that you were holding was... There was blood spilt so that you would have this. In fact, you, you can see all throughout history, and you can read books and materials and resources about those who have lost their lives. Have you ever read, read the Book of Martyrs? Or there's a, a website, a resource that I've, that I've gone to before, the Voice of the Martyrs, and we just see all throughout. Not even just 2,000 years ago, but even in our day today in different countries, there are people who have lost their lives for the sake of Christ. Not only that, but we live in a society that has increasingly anti-Christian values. You know, when I was a kid, and maybe some of you can relate, it was actually a little bit respectful if you went to church. It was sort of a cool thing. Everybody kind of went to church. Here's a Gallup poll that that I found this week. I found this interesting. In in the 1950s, 1% of the population claimed to have no religion. So think about that. 99% of the population claimed to be part of some kind of religious activity. That number has grown to over 20% today. 20% of our population of the world has no sort of religion. In the 1950s, 70% of the population claimed to be Protestant, so that would be sort of what we, that's be what we proclaim that Jesus came and died. He's the Son of God. Seventy percent of the population that has cut in half today. Our country is more secular 
than it has ever been. Just look at our world and see what it is trying to approve as good and right. You know, when I was in school, if someone came out as gay or transgender, they would look to find help for them because their thinking was off. They weren't looking, they weren't seeing things clearly. Something was wrong with their thinking. Now, if you oppose those sort of ways of living, you need to go see a psychologist. You see how the things have changed? Like, this is the world. This is the world that we live in. It is completely rejecting the values of Scripture. And we are on the verge of facing consequences for holding up for Christian values. Romans 1.32 says this, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Today, we are supposed to tolerate everyone unless you are a Christian. This is the reality that we live in today. Have you ever observed online or in person conversations with unbelievers when Jesus is brought up? Now, oftentimes, my one-on-one conversations, I've never had a volatile interaction with somebody. But in the public scheme of things, public realm, when you have these arguments about religion and Jesus, oftentimes it can get violence. It can get, like, people lose their minds over Jesus. That's because since the beginning, the world is relentless against Christ and his followers. But here's the thing. Paul was not surprised. When he encountered these people, this wasn't something that threw him off guard. He wasn't like, what is this? This is something that he was aware of. In fact, Jesus had promised that he would face these things. Just keep your finger here and let's look through a couple passages real quick. In Acts, where it says this, turn real quick to Acts chapter 9. Paul was warned of what was going to take place. Chapter 9, verse 15 and 16, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Turn to Acts chapter 20. We see a similar thing that was said about Paul in light of his suffering. Acts 20, verses 22 and 23. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. The Spirit's moving him to do this, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. He knew that the world was relentless against Christ and his followers. And and having that knowledge prepared him so that when it came to him, he wasn't surprised. He wasn't thrown off guard. And brothers and sisters, Jesus has promised us the same thing. You can can stay where you're at in Acts chapter 25, but let me read a couple passages of what Jesus says to us. Things that I have shared that that are probably not new to you. But nevertheless, I read John 16 verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In Luke chapter 9, this is, this is what we read in verse 23. 
And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I felt like I've said that every week, but this is the theme of, this is Acts. And this is the reality of the world that we live in. And I think it is so important for us to understand that we are promised if we are going to choose to follow the ways of the Lord and to stand for him and to proclaim him, we are going to face persecution. We are going to face hard things. We are going to feel at times that we do not belong because the truth is we don't belong. All throughout we see this idea that we are aliens. We are strangers who are just passing through. We're not meant to build our roots here and stay here and have this to be our forever home. We're passing through. And the reality of this is so important for us to understand. You choose not to participate in coarse joking, crude entertainment, getting drunk and partying on the weekends. You may face ridicule for that. You may find yourself getting left out when the, when the guys at work ask you or whomever ask you to participate and you say, you know what, no, no thank you. You might even be called a goody two-shoe. I've been called that by believers because I choose not to participate in certain things. You choose to go to your school and refuse to have your children taught things that you didn't have to deal with as kids. Things that go against the word of God. Prepare for a backlash. Brothers and sisters, these things are nothing new. It's been happening for centuries. But being prepared and expectant is half the battle. Don't be surprised when you come up against opposition, when you choose to live for the Lord. Jesus promised it. It's coming. Look at verse 4 of chapter 25 of Acts. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. And after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. Here's the next thing we need to be aware of. The world is blind to its foolish ways. The world is blind to its foolish ways. Perhaps Festus could have called for Paul to be taken to Jerusalem, which would have certainly meant his death. But at least at this instance, Festus does the right thing and, and tells them to bring their charges to him in Caesarea. That's what he tells the Jews. So there's a little smiley face for Festus. But newsflash, that's not going to last long. After a week and a half, Festus heads back to Caesarea. And the next day, Paul was brought out before him. And the Jews who accused Paul were there as well. And notice, yet again, charges were brought against him. And as always, there's no proof. There's, they have nothing. I mean, after two years, wouldn't you think you'd have a better defense? If, if you've already tried and there was no proof, wouldn't you try to at least come up with 
something better than what they came up with? Wouldn't you try to at least have some thug pay him to come and accuse him falsely? Nothing. They can't prove him. And Paul has the, basically the same defenses he's always had. There's, there's nothing they can prove. There's, there's nothing going on here. That's because the world is blind to its foolish ways. The Jews, they were driven by hatred for Paul. They hated him. It was driving them to where they were consumed by it. Waiting two years for a new governor to try to pounce on him. Unable to let it go. You know, I believe that God has made us passionate people. But when we are passionate about the wrong things, it gets us in a lot of trouble, doesn't it? And that, that's what we have here. The, this passion is out of control for the Jews, but it's passion for the wrong things. And as believers, we struggle enough with Christ. But as unbelievers, we are absolutely blind to it. Let me read a passage of Scripture for you. If you want to write this down, you can look it up later. But 2 Corinthians 3, verse 14 says the following. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. You see, Paul understood that there was a veil that was keeping them from being able to see the truth. That's called sin. We were all born with that veil. We were all born blind to the ways of God. And, and that's what we see here. They're completely blind to their foolish ways. There is no proof to what Paul did. What they were saying Paul did. There was no, no proof for it. Just as they were, so are we. We we did not come out of the womb singing all hail King Jesus. That was not our heart beat. And the older I get, the more apparent it is that we truly were blinded as unbelievers. I mean, you think that like the more you grow in Christ, isn't it like so obviously true? Think of creation. The, the theories of how we came to be. There was a big bang, so there was stuff swirling around, and all of a sudden there was this big bang. Where, all that, where, where was all that stuff that was swirling around, and how did a big bang form? And you're telling me we accidentally appeared like this then. Or some blob came from the ocean of where we don't know where the ocean came from, and then formed into these different creatures, and, and we have you know, different animals becoming completely different species. If that is true, then why don't you see that today? Why don't dogs become cats? Why don't frogs become horses? Why don't monkeys become human beings? If, if that's the way we came to be, then why do we not see that today? And yet, despite anything that you say, if for unbelievers, there's a bl the, the blinders are on. The blinders keep us from seeing reality. Think of sexual immorality, for instance. God created sex to be between a monogamous marriage of a a, a biological man and a biological woman. If you mess with any of that, it brings chaos. How many couples who have brought immorality into their marriage, whether it be pornography, whether it be an affair, have said, you know what, that really just brought so much fruit to our marriage. 
Like we love each other so much more because we allowed this third person to come in and interfere or we allowed these images to, like, like things don't go well. But when you have a husband and a wife who deeply love one another and more importantly, they deeply love Jesus Christ and he is truly at the center of their marriage, is sex not the greatest gift, one of the greatest gifts God has given us? Things go so much better when my eyes are off myself and they are aimed on Christ. And when Nikki is doing the same thing, our marriage goes so much better. To me, that just, again, shows the reality of God. And that these are the ways that he has commanded us to live, right? He's, he's called us to be faithful to one another, to flee from sexual immorality. His word is good. His commands are light. His commands bring life to us. And yet the world sees things completely differently. The world says, go after what you want. What does your flesh say, flesh say to go after? Do it. You, you deserve what you want. That's what the world will tell you. That's foolish. Haven't you tasted, believer, and seen that that kind of living does not bring lasting life? The world is blind to its, to its foolish ways. Number three. The world lives for the glory of self. The world lives for the glory of self. These two points are kind of connected. Do you see that? Like, we, like the world lives for itself. Look at verse 9. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, so here he goes sideways here a little bit, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So Festus, he cares more about what the Jews think of him than he does about justice, than he does about truth. You see, in his mind, he needed the approval of the Jews so that he could remain in control and, and have cooperation so that things would look good on the outside, that people would look and praise him for what he's doing. His reputation hung on the line of how the Jews responded to him. And the reality of Festus is the reality of the world. He was living for who? He was living for himself. By pleasing the Jews, it would ultimately bless him. It ultimately take some heat off of him and put the Jews in his corner. He was living for self. So he tried to get Paul to go back to Jerusalem. But Paul didn't want to go. In fact, he knew that there was no, no justice there and there was no hope for him there to win any arguments there. And so he appeals to Caesar, which was his right. And so that's what happens, crushing Festus's desire to please the Jews. Listen, when you choose to live your life without acknowledging God, there is only one person to live for. Self. 
When you choose to not believe in God, why would you live for anyone else? Like, what's the point? If all we do is eat, drink, and marry, like be merry, and then we die, then why live for some other authority if there is no authority uh, as far as the, the idea of God? Like, it makes sense to live for oneself. It makes sense to not live for the glory of someone you don't believe in. And why would you live then for a created being? Because ultimately you're going to be gone soon anyway. And isn't this the reality of what has thrown our world into chaos? That we live for ourselves. And if you have everybody living for themselves, then everybody is looking at everybody else as getting in the way, right? Because who gets in the way if you are living for yourself? Everybody gets in your way. You know, I, I was thinking this week just about how many times I have treated my family as if the world revolved around me. And I've treated my kids as if they exist to, to make my life easier. Or my wife exists to make me happy. How does that go for you? Husbands, when you expect your wife to live for your glory, how does that go for you? <laughs> does that go well? <laughs> it's never gone well for me. Because we weren't created to live for our own glory. But that's what happens. Everybody else gets in the way. But when Jesus is your authority, and he is the one that you live for the glory of, who is the only person who can get in the way? Self, right? Things go so much better, even in, when, he calls, when he tells us to live for other people, humble ourselves, consider others more important than ourselves. What happens when we are living to bless others? Oh, how life goes so much better. When been living for ourselves. But let's just look at scripture. There are so many scriptures. I'm going to scratch the surface with just a handful of scriptures here. I'm going to go through it pretty quickly. So if you want to write the references down, you can. But consider what the scriptures speak, how they speak to the need of denying self, the dangers of living for self. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 2 Timothy 3, 2 says, people will be lovers of self. 1 Corinthians 10, 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. James 4, 1 and 2, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? What you want, the things that you desire, they're at war. You desire and do not have, so you murder because somebody got in the way. You covet and you cannot obtain. You look at somebody else and you think, I want what they have. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Romans 2.8, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. This is what we see here in these leaders in Acts chapter 25. The desire to live for self, the desire to make life as easy as possible for self. And Christian, let's be honest, isn't this our struggle today? Isn't this what we deal with on a daily basis from the moment we wake up until the moment we go to sleep? Often at, often at night, um, I don't know about you, but about 8 o'clock, I'm done. <laughs> like I'm toast. 
And it's like I get in my goal, I'm like, let's get these kids to bed so I can have me time. And it's completely selfish. And whenever I live that way, man, kid gets out of bed because he's t- scared, and I can flip my lid because he's getting in the way of my kingdom come. So let me ask you, whose glory are you living for? What would your boss say? What would your spouse say? What would your kids say? What would your neighbor say? Who is the one that you want to have all the glory, to receive all of the attention? The world lives for the glory of self. Here's the fourth thing. Jesus is foolishness to the world. Jesus is foolishness to the world. So here you, you have a new person, a couple new people coming to the scene here. You have Agrippa, who's the king. And, and let me just let me just read a few things about Herod. This is Herod Agrippa. Let me just read a few things about the fallenness of Herod and his crew. Like the Herodian family were awful. Just listen to Agrippa's ancestry. His father, his, I'm sorry, his grandfather was Herod the Great. He had ten wives, and upon hearing that a baby king was born, anybody know who that baby king was? Jesus? He ordered every Jewish boy under the age of two to be slaughtered. And then after Herod the Great died, his kingdom was split and passed on to a few of his sons. And these guys were beastly as well. Herod Agrippa's father, the one that we read of here, his father was Herod Agrippa I. He beheaded James and imprisoned Peter. He invited people to worship him and got struck dead by an angel and eaten by worms. His uncle, Herod Antipas, he divorced his own wife and stole his half-brother's wife, Herodias. For his birthday, Antipas enjoyed a sensual dance from his 12-year-old stepdaughter. He then beheaded John the Baptist. You remember him in the Gospels. His sister was Drusilla, remember Drusilla, last week, who divorced her first husband to be married to Felix. And she left her husband to marry the, yeah, so we talked about that. And then, and then he had another sister here in Acts 25. This is Bernice. This is Herod Agrippa. So the one that we're talking about, this king, his sister is Bernice. His sister is traveling with them. And the rumor goes that they had a sensual relationship with one another. These are awful people, foolish, things that as Christians we cannot fathom living this way. But yet, this is what the world is. So Festus lays out the arguments before King Agrippa. And really, Festus, he's at a loss. He, he, he failed to see any wrong that Paul has done deserving of serious punishment. He understood that this was a religious argument here. This had nothing to do with anything of serious issues. Verse 19, it says, verse, look at verse 18. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I suppose. So he's thinking, okay, man, this guy's been in prison for two years and they want him gone. Like they want to bring him on trial. He must be, he must have done something crazy. He must be a murderer. He must be a major thief. He's done something bad. And he's like, man, I found nothing. And the evils that I suppose that he was guilty of, 
There's nothing like that. Verse 19, rather they had certain points of dispute with them about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. So it seems to me, I could be wrong here, I I don't know, like does Agrippa and Festus have no idea who Jesus is? Like he's saying this Jesus who died and rose again, like I don't know, but the reality is, this is that's the crux of the issue. They don't know what to do with Jesus. The truth is, Festus did not truly know who Jesus was, neither did the Jews who accused him knew who he was. Jesus was foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul says this, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. To the unbelieving world, Jesus doesn't make sense. Even this week on a keyboard warrior moments that people have on Facebook. I was just following some comments on a post and somebody was like, I would never have a relationship with anybody who has an imaginary friend who he talks to, who she talks to. Speaking of Jesus, that, that's the way the world looks at us. We follow this dead man who they say rose again. We, we believe in things like a, an ark that had a bunch of people and there was a major flood that killed all of humanity except for Noah and his family. All the things that we claim to believe is foolishness. The world just can't see it. They, 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 can't, they don't know who this Jesus is. They, 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 how could somebody die and then rise again and literally walk amongst the people? They just can't make sense of Jesus. My encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, as you have conversations, be reminded that you are going to encounter. You might, you might give an amazing illustration of the gospel. Your life may be completely transformed. You have walked from Death literally almost to life. You have lived a pagan life full of the world, and you are 100% different than what you were. And you can share that, and for some people, the veil is still there, and Jesus is just going to be foolishness. And for believers, I encourage you, be aware of that. Be sensitive to that. Be reminded that we plant and we water, but who is the one that brings the growth? Jesus, he is the only one that can open our eyes to the reality of Jesus. And Paul, Paul knew that. You, you know the story of Paul, right? If you've been here long enough, you've heard us recap that. Where Paul was on the road to Damascus on the way to persecute Christians and Jesus radically changed his life. Only by the grace of Jesus Christ did Paul Find Jesus. Jesus opened his eyes to see, and so as he stood before them, he wasn't surprised. In fact, that we read other places in Scripture, Paul had a broken heart for his brothers. Paul desired even to lose his own salvation if it meant that they would be saved. Jesus is foolishness to the world. Here's the last thing. We'll go through this quickly. Let your light shine in the world. Let your light shine in the world. So, Agrippa tells Festus that he would love to meet with Paul. 
And so the next day, Paul is brought before. Of course, they have a big pomp and circumstance. They, you know, it's, it, it, it reminded me this morning, as you see that, as this great pomp, it says in verse 23. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. So there's this, this big to-do as they walk in. And I think, of, I think of Jesus as he walked to Calvary. And the scowls and the abuse and the hate, hatred that he faced on that road. And yet, here you have these sinful people who are brought in with a big party. And Festus says in verse 24, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Here, here's in essence what Festus is saying. Look, this is, this is a man who, there's, there's no wrong here. This is crazy that we're even here, right? I have nothing to, to write. I am trying to figure out what to write. Because if he's guilty and he's a prisoner, it's unreasonable not to indicate any charges. Paul has carried himself in such a way where his light is shining. His light shone to these people. And there was nothing that they could combat with. There was, they, just, they could not see any wrong with him. You've heard me read this often at the end of this service, Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world, Christian. What kind of light are you shining to those around you? A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who see in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that... They may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As you consider your life, what kind of light are you shining even when circumstances are rough? What kind of light does your family see who sees the best and the worst of you? What light do your coworkers see, your neighbors, your fellow classmates, when you consider all these things that we've talked about that define the world, we have such an opportunity to be bright lights. When we stand against the foolishness of the world and we proclaim joyfully, we proclaim with grace the truth and the reality of who Jesus is, our light shines bright, even if people want to cover it up. In the end, they will not be able to speak against you because your light shines bright for Christ. Paul made a difference. I, I wish we had more of the backstory here to know what, what was Festus thinking. You, you ever, like, you have your kids, like, try to point fingers at others and you know who's guilty? And you're like, come on, this is ridiculous. I know that he's not guilty. You're, this is ridiculous. Like, I, was he feeling that way? Was Festus feeling that way? I don't know. I wish I had more to the story, but I'm led to believe that Paul 
there was something about him that shone bright because he was different than the world. Are you different than the world? When you consider all that the world is, relentless against Christ and his followers, blind to its foolish ways, living for the glory of self, viewing Jesus as foolish, we have an amazing opportunity to let our gospel light shine. Are you letting it? And if so, are you giving proper glory to Christ when people call it out? Are you just saying thank you? I'm like, you know what, if there's good in me, it's Jesus who has done this in me. I'm a selfish person. Jesus has been amazing in my life. Let me wrap it up here by sharing some action steps that you can put into practice. I encourage you, memorize Matthew 5, 14 through 16. If you haven't already, let your light shine so others may see it. See your light and give glory to your Father in heaven. Read 1 Corinthians 6. It just speaks of the brokenness and the sinfulness of man. Just My prayer is that we would be softened to the reality of not being angry at the world, but having a deeper understanding of how broken the world is. That it would lead us to pray. We're going to have a second here. We're going to have time here in a second to, to reflect and to pray and ask God to save those whom we know are lost in our lives. So third thing there, who are you living for? Are you living for your own glory or are you living for the glory of God alone? And I'll just remind you to let your light shine. Does your life look different than the world around you? Not because of anything you've done, but because of the grace of God. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite you just in your chairs. And I want you to seek the Lord. Maybe, is the Lord convicting you on any of these things? Are you, are you looking at the realities of fallen humanity and realize, you know what? Man, I'm seeing this a lot in my life, that I'm living a foolish life that doesn't reflect Christ. Maybe this is a time of repentance. Maybe it's a time to seek the Lord. Maybe God brings somebody in your, into mind who is living foolishly, doesn't know Jesus Christ, and your desire is to see them come to the Lord. Let me encourage you to spend time now going before the Lord, asking the Lord to open their eyes that they may behold the glories of Jesus Christ. And perhaps you're praying for opportunities this week that God may open the door for you to share the good news. So let's just spend a couple minutes now seeking the Lord and then I'll close this in prayer here in just a second. Father, I thank you for your grace and for your mercy, Lord. For those of us who have repented of our sin and genuinely placed our faith in you, God, we have been made right. Lord, if that's true 
Lord, for those of us who that is true for, I pray that you would soft, soften our hearts this morning. That you would remind us, God, that we are undeserving of salvation, Lord, that if we are living righteous lives, it's because of your Holy Spirit's work in us, not because of anything good in us. So, Lord, guard us from looking at the sinfulness and the foolishness of the world. Guard us from hateful anger. Lord, let us be angry and not sin. Let, let us be angry at sin. Let us be angry at what sin has done to us and to others. But, Lord, soften our hearts for those who are trapped and blinded by the enemy, blinded by their own sin. God, that it would lead us to, to pray for those around us who we see in that position. I pray for gospel opportunities even this week, Lord, that you would open up doors, that we could share the good news, that you would give us the words to say. Lord, you have been merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to us. May we be able to share that love with others. God, would you grow your kingdom this week through the work of your people here at Gospel Community? We are desperate for you to show up. And we thank you for your spirit's work in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll pray for you this week that you have a great week, praying that your light shines bright, that you are reminded of what you are called to live for, living for the glory of Christ alone. So have a great week. If you need prayer, Mark, Aaron, myself, we're here. We'd love to pray with you. Don't go without doing so. Uh, but have a good week as you head into the mission field.